We often look to the Bible for the answers to the problems of life. But the Bible is not a book filled with answers. It's a story filled with questions. Jesus asked a lot of questions. In fact, he often responded to questions with another question. One scholar notes that Jesus was asked about 183 questions in the Gospels, but only answered three. Not a very high percentage. My mother once took a course with South African pastor Trevor Hudson about his book, Questions God Asks Us, where each chapter is on a different question God asks in the Bible, like, where is your brother? What is your name? What are you doing here? What are you looking for? Who do you say that I am? Do you want to get well? And why are you crying? They're all profound questions with extraordinary stories behind them, but Hudson never addressed my favorite question God asked in the Bible, which is, who told you that you were naked? That's right. Who told you that you were naked? God asked this question in Genesis of the first human beings in the Garden of Eden. Upon eating the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve's eyes were opened and they believed that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together as loincloths to hide their bodies from one another and concealed themselves among the trees to hide their bodies from God. First God asked, where are you? And Adam said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Then God immediately responded, who told you that you were naked? I love this question. Many theologians have used the story and this question to ground the doctrine of original sin, but as our Jewish neighbors remind us, this is not a story about sin, but a myth about the origins of humanity, how we came to be, and who we are in relationship to one another and to God. The question God asked in Genesis is not about original sin, but original shame. The shame we feel about our bodies the shame we feel about being flawed, imperfect, mortal, and finite. The shame we feel about being human. Who told you that you were naked? Who told you to be ashamed of your body? Who told you to be ashamed of being human? It certainly wasn't God. No, it wasn't God who told you, but it might have been a mother or a father, a brother or a sister a grandmother or a grandfather. It wasn't God, but it might have been the kids in your school. It wasn't God, but it might have been a pastor or your church. It wasn't God, but it might have been a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a lover, a spouse, or a partner. It wasn't God, but it might have been a magazine like Cosmo or Men's Health. It wasn't God, but it might have been a marketer a commercial or a television show telling you to be ashamed of what you are so they can sell you something else. No, it wasn't God who told you that you should be ashamed. It wasn't God that told you that you were naked. It was someone else. But you can probably remember the first time you started to believe them, the first time you began to become ashamed just to be you or just to be. It was middle school for me. As it is for so many others, middle school is a season of great shame. When I was in fifth grade, everybody was wearing sweatpants to school. It was the cool thing to do. 
But when I showed up for the first day of sixth grade wearing my sweatpants, nobody else was wearing sweatpants. Everyone was in jeans but me. I didn't get the memo over the summer, and I couldn't understand why people would trade comfortable athleisure wear for scratchy jeans. But I quickly received my education. During recess, the sixth graders were hanging outside after lunch, and I was talking to a girl I liked named Gabby. We were having a great conversation when out of nowhere a boy named Rob came up behind me and flagged me. He pulled my pants all the way down and exposed my half-naked body to Gabby and the entire sixth grade. Everyone laughed. I was humiliated. Gabby ran away, screaming. I cried, and then I went home to tell my mom I needed some jeans and a serious belt as soon as possible. Who told you that you were naked? This question is similar to one that pervades the Gospels, the question of purity and cleanliness. Who told you you were impure? Who told you that you were unclean? Concepts of purity and cleanliness were derived from the priestly codes in the book of Leviticus, where we find extensive laws and regulations regarding what not to eat, what to do with women who are menstruating or postnatal, and how to treat irregularities of the skin like leprosy. Two entire chapters of Leviticus 13 and 14 are dedicated to identifying leprosy and providing guidelines for their ritual purification. Of course, the word leprosy in those days did not refer to the medical diagnosis of a chronic bacterial infection in the skin like it does today. Leprosy referred to any breakout or rash or discoloration or condition on the skin, and yet there are two ideas that dominate Levitical instruction on leprosy. One, it should always be assumed to be contagious. And two, only a priest can preside over ritual purification. Only a priest can declare someone clean. In our modern 21st century healthcare system, it's difficult for us to imagine the world of Jesus. We understand illness as a scientific fact determined by medical diagnosis. But in the first century, illness was not about science or biology. As scholar Jay Pilch writes, illness was a socio-cultural idea concerned with perception and experience of certain disvalued states, including but not limited to disease. Illness inevitably affected others, the family, the neighborhood, the village. Therefore, the social process of defining and treating sickness constituted the healthcare system of a given culture. The sickness described as leprosy in the Bible was not a biomedical concept, but a social one, which is why the Bible claims leprosy threatens the community and must always be removed. Pilch goes on to say, this is also why every time Jesus heals someone, there's almost a total disregard for their symptoms. Instead, we see a constant concern for social meaning. Jesus was not curing people medically, but healing them socially by providing solutions to the problems that resulted from illness, like rejection, isolation, poverty, and shame. Can you imagine the kind of power priests had in Jesus' day? They had the power to determine who was sick and who was not, who was clean and who was unclean, who was pure and who was impure, 
Who could be banished from society and who could remain? Who would be humiliated and who would be honored? Who would become destitute, begging for alms on the streets to survive? And who would be financially secure? In the first century, the answer to the question, who told you to be ashamed, was the priest. In the culture of honor and shame, based on the scriptural purity codes of Leviticus, it was the priest who decided who was pure and impure, who was honored and who was shamed. Now, Jesus was most definitely not a priest. So when he started healing people and freeing them from shame, he was illegally impersonating the priests, illegally subverting the purity codes, illegally flipping the culture of honor and shame on its head, illegally turning the social order of first century Judean society upside down. It's not like Jesus went looking for trouble. The man with leprosy came to him, begging, kneeling before him, and almost dared Jesus to heal him. The man was well aware of the priestly purity system when he came to Jesus, which is why he offered Jesus a choice. He said in the original Greek, if you choose, you can declare me clean. He was right. Jesus couldn't ritually or officially cleanse the man because he was not a priest, but he could declare him clean, which might not cure his illness, but it would eliminate his shame by effectively changing the way he was perceived in the eyes of the community and allow him to return to his family and society. Jesus was also well aware of the priestly purity codes. He could have easily ignored the man in order to avoid raising suspicions or charges of blasphemy from the authorities. But instead, Mark tells us Jesus was moved in this story with powerful emotions. The text says that he felt pity. But a better translation there is that he felt his guts churning with empathy. So Jesus reached out. And touched the man and said, I do choose. I declare you are clean. In this act of compassion, Jesus healed the man's shame, overturned the man's social standing, and restored him to the community. But the question remains, did he literally heal his skin? We'll never know the answer to that question. It remains a mystery. But it is one that does not need to be solved because it won't change the meaning of the story. This story is the answer to the question, who told you that you were naked? Someone in religious power told you that you were naked. Someone in religious power told you that you were unclean. Someone in religious power told you that you were impure. Someone in religious power told you that you were sick. Someone in religious power told you that your body is shameful. But God has questioned their diagnosis. And the good news of this story is that Jesus came to declare that there are no bodies that are shameful. No bodies are impure. No bodies are unclean. No bodies are dishonorable. Jesus came to reveal that every culture of honor and shame is a lie and all the purity codes of every religious system are a sham. Jesus came to proclaim once and for all that all bodies are honorable and holy, sacred and sacramental, dignified and divine, and 
as Peter heard firsthand three times in a row on that roof in Joppa. Who are we to call impure? What God has made clean. Who are we to call profane? What God has made holy. Christianity and the church has never known what to do with the human body. Our theologies of the body have been impotent, derivative, and harmful, often setting up hierarchies of bodies, of healthy, wealthy, white, able-bodied, cisgender, heterosexual, religious men at the top, and every other body somewhere down the pecking order on the ladder below. In our fear of what liberated bodies might do if they were free to undermine this hierarchy, the official moral teachings of Christianity and the church have often sought to control bodies and police bodies, but rarely have they ever tried to learn how to love and honor the body. Instead, we set up the unattainable platonic ideal of the supposedly perfect body, a healthy, wealthy, white, able-bodied religious male, and we became the arbiters of a worldwide purity system that honored certain bodies and shamed others. As a result, Christianity and the church have not, for the most part, been a force for freedom and liberation, but an agent of shame for so many. An institution where people have been made to feel that they were not enough or will never be enough simply because of their bodies. We've fallen far from the vision we see in Jesus, whose life and teachings were consistently directed toward healing personal and social shame. Instead of healing shame, the church has often been the primary cause of much shame. And the obvious consequence of this abdication of our responsibility as a religious community, is the arrival today of an incredible cadre of women, for the most part, who are writing about shame outside the church, like Brene Brown and Nadia Bolz-Weber and Glennon Doyle Melton and Sonia Renee Taylor, trying to clean up the shameful mess that the church has created. So many people are still plagued by a primal feeling of shame. We're ashamed of our bodies, ashamed of our families, ashamed of our sexual histories, ashamed of our jobs and our relationships, our health and our diets, our ability or disabilities, our mental health, our age. We are people who often feel stupid and broken, inadequate and insecure, dirty, ugly, unlovable, deserving of abuse or unworthy of love. Sadly, the answer to the question, who told you that you were naked, is often right here, us. Many of us have become our own personal purity code of honor and shame, shaming ourselves for not being perfect, for having a body, for being human. Shame is the very thing that Jesus came to heal, and whether we are conscious of it, or willing to admit it, we are all in need of that kind of healing. Yet Jesus did not only heal the bodies of lepers and the sick and those oppressed by first century purity codes. He also confronted the priests who were maintaining the system. The aftermath of 
The healing of this man with leprosy has been wildly misinterpreted by European commentators who often give the impression that Jesus instructed the leper after the healing to go back and abide in some priestly ritual. However, that misses the plot and the tone of this story and all of Jesus' emotions. After the healing, some translators say that Jesus sternly warned the man and sent him away, but the warning was not directed toward the man who had been healed. The Greek in this sentence does not mean sternly warned, something more like seething with indignation. Jesus was seething with indignation when he dispatched the man saying, go to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing as a witness against them. Jesus was seething with righteous anger and protest. Why such strong emotions here in this story? The only answer could be that the man with leprosy had already been to see the priests. He'd already been there and was denied a healing. They had rejected his petition for cleansing and left him unclean permanently with no resources for his restoration except to go to a traveling healer, not a priest named Jesus outside the official system in the hopes that he might find some way back from poverty and destitution into society. Jesus could have let the healing stand on its own as a matter of personal redemption and social inclusion, but he was hot with rage and angry at the dehumanizing logic of the priestly codes, and so he decided to make a political issue of it by sending the man back to the priests as a witness against them to confront their callousness to challenge the ideological purity codes that they benefited from and to hold them accountable for maintaining an unjust system of honor and shame. Jesus' actions in this story are the fulfillment of God's words from the prophet Malachi, made famous by Handel's Messiah. See, I am sending a messenger of the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap, and he will purify the priests who are descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord of justice. Then God says, I will be swift to bear witness against all of them who oppress the hired workers in their wages, who oppress the widow and the orphan, and all those who thrust the foreigners aside. Jesus healed shame in every direction, starting from the bottom and working his way up to the top. He healed the shame of the oppressed by declaring them clean, and he healed the shame of the oppressors by witnessing against their injustice. As followers... His ministry to both leper and priest provokes us to discern where we find ourselves in this story. What are we most ashamed of about ourselves? Our bodies? Our humanity? Or is it that we are ashamed of the bodies of others? The season of Lent begins this Wednesday. Wednesday 
Lent is a time where people give up things that separate them from God and neighbor. Instead of giving up sweets or meat or alcohol this year, maybe in this Lenten season, we should give up our shame and our shaming. But it's not Lent yet, is it? It is Valentine's Day. And on Valentine's Day, I always think of radical self-love and the great prophet of radical self-love, Sonia Renee Taylor, who was a guest speaker at our church about a year ago. She came to try to teach us that there is nothing about the body to be ashamed of. Because as the brilliant poem she offered for a benediction proclaimed, the body is not an apology. Taylor says, racism, sexism, ableism, homophobia, transphobia, ageism, and fatphobia are algorithms created by humanity's struggle to try to make peace with the body. A radical self-love world, she says, is a world free from the systems of oppression that make it difficult and deadly to live in our very bodies. It is a world that works for everybody and for every body. Creating this world, she says, is an inside-out job. How we value and honor our own bodies impacts how we value and honor the bodies of others. Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were undeserving or undesirable? Who told you to be ashamed of your body? Who told you to be ashamed of being human? I know it wasn't God. Maybe it was someone in religious power. Maybe it was a priest or a pastor, a parent, a classmate, a teacher, a lover, a spouse. Maybe you told yourself, whoever it was that told you to be ashamed of your body was wrong. The devil is a liar. And so was the snake in the garden. God proclaimed, you are not naked. You are clothed with my glory, made in my image. And Jesus proclaimed, I declare that you are clean. You are pure. I choose to say that you are holy and you are honorable. You are accepted and included. You are restored and you are redeemed. You are sacred and sacramental. You are beloved and you are mine. And like Jesus, we too, his followers, have the power to declare that all people are clean. We have the power to stand up against any system, religious or otherwise, any priestly code that claims that someone is not enough because of their body. We have the power to speak out and to say to our families and to our neighbors, to ourselves and to all the powers that be, who are you to call impure what God has made clean? Who are you to call shameful what God has made sacred? Who are you to call profane what God has made holy? Amen.